0: Chapter 19 of From Tangier to Tripoli by Frank G. Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. A City of the Air. If we could take one of our American towns of 50,000 inhabitants, crowd its houses together so that they would not cover more than the area of a half-section farm, and then lift the bedrock on which they stand straight up into the air for 2300 feet we should have some of the conditions which exist here at constantine africa's famous city of the air it lies in the heart of north africa about 300 miles east of algiers fifty miles south of the mediterranean and 125 miles north of the desert of sahara it is built upon an enormous rock at an altitude of two thousand feet above the sea and nearly encircling it is a mighty gorge a thousand feet deep. The houses stand on a huge stone platform, on three sides of which rocky walls drop down precipitously to a valley, almost twice as deep as the Washington Monument is high. A rushing, foaming river flows through the gorges thus made. On every side lies a rolling country, ending in the desert-like mountains of the great Atlas chain. I doubt whether there is another such city on earth. The Arabs call it the city of the air, and it is the mightiest roof garden known to man. But Constantine is far more than a roof garden. It is a fortification as well. For almost 3,000 years, it has been the site of a camp or barracks for soldiers, and its adventurous story is written in blood. It has successfully withstood 80 sieges, When the French took it, about 1837, they employed an army of 10,000 men. At that time, hundreds of its Arab inhabitants, who tried to escape by letting themselves down over the rocks, were dashed to pieces in the gorges below, and so many Mohammedan women committed suicide in that way that the river ran blood. The Kasbah, or citadel, which was then the chief fort of the Arabs, is now occupied by several thousand french troops it commands the highest point on the rocky plateau and is above the most precipitous part of the gorge in it there are stone cisterns and granaries built by the romans while not far from it is a great stone aqueduct which the romans made to supply the place with water constantine was a city in the days of the phoenicians and under the name of It was the capital of a Carthaginian province, ruled by Hannibal's brother-in-law. Later on, it became the capital of Numidia, which furnished the famous Numidian lions for the gladiatorial shows of old Rome. A little more than 300 years after Christ, it was called Constantine, in honor of the Roman emperor of that date, and when the Arabs came in it, was made one of their capitals. Though once so invincible, the city could now be easily battered to pieces. Modern guns placed on the opposite heights could shatter the buildings and in a few hours sweep the rock clear of houses and people. In the warfare of the past, however, it was almost impregnable, and the great canyon by which it is surrounded formed a barrier which no army could scale. If you would realize how great the barrier was, come with me down into the gorge, Steps have been gouged out of the rocks by the French. There are hanging walks along the sides of the cliffs so that when we can climb a thousand feet down to where the River Roumel, known also as the River of Sands, races and froths its way to the Mediterranean Sea. We take carriages and drive far up the valley and then cross to get to the ladders. The way is rough and tiresome, but we climb down, 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 until at last we are near the water far below the city. On both sides of us rise sheer black walls stained by drains and springs and roofed by the sky. The gorge is about 200 feet wide, narrowing in places to 150 feet or less. The rocks rise almost straight up from the river and we make our way through a narrow canyon along this foaming stream. Down here in the gorge the noises of the city are unheard and nothing breaks the stillness but the whirring of the wings of the crows, storks, and other birds as they fly across to their nests in one wall or the other, and the roaring of the hurrying river as it dashes on through the rocks. The gorge changes in character as we go along. Here the cliffs are mighty pillars of stone five hundred feet high. There, they look like great battlements, and farther on, they almost meet overhead. At the lower end of the canyon, almost under the kasbah, is a natural bridge, somewhat like that of Virginia. Across it runs an aqueduct built by the Romans, and at the same place are the remains of the Roman road which joined the city to the mainland. This old bridge is still in good condition. It is right under the iron bridge of Cantara, which now forms the chief highway to the city on the rock. I came here from the desert of Sahara by transferring at El Guera to the railroad from Algiers to Tunis. This landed me on heights opposite the city, and in a cab I crossed the Kantara Bridge over the gorge to the rocky plateau. I am living in a comfortable hotel situated on a street so narrow that a carriage cannot turn around in it. I am only a short distance from where the ledge drops into the depths and were i a sleepwalker i might find my way out of the house and dash myself to pieces in the depths below in one part of the town there are many fine buildings the french have put up a city hall at a cost of several million francs there are some excellent stores and at the north reached by bridges a european city has been constructed on a modern scale by a syndicate of capitalists from Lyon in France. This settlement has now more than 22,000 French residents and nearly 3,000 other Europeans. Constantine has about 32,000 souls who believe in the prophet Muhammad and in addition something like 8,000 Jews. The Mohammedans are the controlling native element. Living at this place, they might be said to have in reality mansions in the skies. I wish you could see their homes. They are along the usual narrow streets where you can stand in the middle and touch the walls on both sides. The streets wind this way and that. There are many blind alleys and the maze of crossing ways is often so confusing that one might wander about a long time and learn his location only when he came to the edge of the plateau and looked down into the gorge. These houses are squalid and rough. They are usually of two or three stories made of brick and stone covered with stucco they are painted blue or white with roofs of the same hues the roofs are flat and each has a low wall about it few of the houses have windows facing the streets and all windows are covered with an iron network for fear the ladies of the harem may be seen by others than their husbands the arab women here are quite as secluded as those of other parts of algeria or of morocco They wrap themselves in shawls when they go out of doors and wear pieces of white cotton tied tightly about their faces so that one sees only their eyes. So far I have not observed a single pair of the voluminous trousers so common in the streets of Algiers. The gowns of these Constantine ladies fall clear to the feet and the female population looks like so many big fat bundles waddling along upon slippers. The Arab men, on the other hand, are gorgeously dressed and spend much money on their clothes. The Jews here differ from their race in Europe or America, so that what I write is not to be considered as applying at all to our Hebrew population. There have been Jews in Africa since the time of the Carthaginians. They are a people of their own class, but quite as African as the Arabs themselves. At Constantine they dress like Arabs the men wear rich jackets elaborately embroidered and full trousers tied in at the knee they have red fezes which are often bound with great turbans some wear gowns but now and then one is to be seen in european clothes the faces of these israelites are darker than those of other countries but they have the same jewish features and many of them are fine looking i like especially the appearance of the jewish women although I sadly fear that some of them are no better than they should be. They look at men boldly and without shame. Today is Saturday, the Hebrew Sabbath, and as it is also a fete day, the people are all out in their fine clothes. The streets are swarming with Jewish girls loaded with jewelry. Their arms are bare to the shoulders, their wrists and forearms are adorned with bracelets of silver and gold, and their fingers sparkle with rings. Many of them are dressed in silk gowns, over which lace shawls are thrown. Their heads are tied up in silk handkerchiefs, and on the top of them are red velvet caps embroidered with gold. These caps are much like cornucopias. They are about four inches in diameter and are worn on the crown of the head. They are fastened on by silk bands tied under the chin, and these bands are often decorated with gold coins. Sometimes gold chains are used. Nearly all of the Jewesses wear earrings. Some have brooches set with diamonds, and many have strings of pearls about their necks. I have visited the chief synagogue, which is situated near the gorge in the heart of the city, and it seems to be very well attended. When I entered, it was filled with Hebrew men wearing the same dress as the Arabs. Each had also a white shawl, and all kept on their fezes during the service. The rabbi, who occupied a pulpit in the center of the synagogue, Intoned the scripture with a nasal twang from parchment scrolls, and the worshipers followed him with their Hebrew Bibles. Every man and boy had a little velvet bag decorated with Hebrew characters in gold or silver for carrying his books of worship. As far as I could see, the books themselves were well-thumbed. The Jews stores are closed today, but the Arabs are carrying on business as usual. This is one of the industrial centers of eastern Algeria and the native quarter fairly hums with men working at their trades. Constantine is famous for its leather work. It makes shoes, saddles and harness and also leather bags and cushions, beautifully embroidered. Each trade has its own street. One will be filled with shoemakers, another with blacksmiths and another with weavers. About a 100,000 hexes and burnouses are made here yearly, as well as a great deal of cloth for the tents used by the Bedouins. This work is all done upon hand looms in rooms which look more like stables or cellars than factories. I spent some time this afternoon in the street of the blacksmiths, watching them make hoes and plowshares. The latter are for all the world like the long sharp trowels used by our masons, say that they are about a quarter of an inch thick. They are of wrought iron and are so bent at one end that they can be fastened by an iron band to the forked stick which forms the rest of the plow. The blacksmiths are Arabs, dressed in enormous trousers and jackets. Their sleeves were rolled up and they pounded away at the anvils, just like our blacksmiths at home. The average shop of this kind is only big enough to hold the anvil, the furnace, and two or three men. It is a sort of a hole in the wall, about six feet wide, twenty feet deep, and perhaps twelve feet in height. At the back are a rude bellows and furnace. In the center the men work at the anvil, while at the front is a counter upon which the plow points are displayed for sale. In one street I found scores of Arab cobblers making red slippers for women, and in another place men sitting cross-legged embroidering leather in gold. There are many restaurants and coffee houses in these localities. The coffee is always made to order and costs only about two cents a cup. The restaurant is usually in or back of the kitchen. The latter faces the street and the cooking goes on in full view of the customers. One of the oddest of these establishments sold nothing but boiled sheep heads cooked on an oven right next to the sidewalk. In a kettle filled with boiling water, sheep heads were bobbing up and down, their glazed eyes staring at the passers-by. The heads had been skinned, and as I looked in, the long white teeth of the sheep appeared to grind themselves together in rage. On the floor were a number of heads, still unskinned. They had just come from the butchers, and the blood ran from them out into the street. My dragoman told me that the cook heads were delicious and begged me to step in and try one, saying that we could get a whole head for 12 cents. Many of the heads are sold to be carried home, and I find that head is frequently on the bills of fare at the hotels. After what I saw today, I shall eat them no more. This cookshop reminds me of a dog and rat restaurant of Canton in South China, and of a horse meat restaurant, which I once visited in Berlin, Both of them were cleanly in comparison. I spent some time in the Palace of the Bay. It is now the headquarters of the French army officers, but for a long time, it was the residence of the Turkish rulers of Constantine and their harems. From the outside, it looks like an ordinary two-story building, but its interior is wonderfully decorated and rich in marbles, mosaics, and carvings. The palace consists of an acre or so of buildings with galleries above and below built around beautiful gardens the walls of the galleries are of porcelain tiles and their roofs are upheld by marble pillars beautifully cut the old bey who built the palace is said to have brought much of the material from the ruins of carthage the porcelains came from genoa and the carvings from the houses of the wealthy residents of constantine if a man was noted as having an especially fine door or window the bey ordered him to send it to his new palace and if there was any furniture that he especially desired he got it in the same high-handed way one of the strangest features of the arcades looking out upon the gardens is a series of paintings of mohammedan cities these are spread upon the walls without regard to harmony or art the colors swear at each other the drawing is faulty and perspective is lacking as it is contrary to the koran to make pictures of men there is no sign of human life in the paintings this work was done by a french shoemaker who was in prison in constantine when the palace was building the bey wanted some pictures on the walls and he said the dog of a christian might do the work the shoemaker objected saying he was not a painter but the bey's officials replied every frenchman is an artist and you must paint for the bey if you do not you will be flogged with twenty-five lashes for every day you are idle." The result was a series of remarkable representations of Algiers, Cairo, Jerusalem, and Constantinople. When the potentate saw them, he was delighted. He paid the man well and sent him back to Paris, loaded with presents. It was this same Bey, El-Haj Ahmed, who punished one of his wives for plucking the forbidden fruit of the palace garden. It was his custom to sit every afternoon in a little kiosk in the center of a court filled with fruit trees and flowers here the bands played and here betimes the women of his harem walked up and down and paraded themselves while his highness looked on his four wives and three hundred concubines were all dressed in their finest clothing as they walked in single file around the court with their arms crossed upon their bosoms not daring to look at their lord they were allowed no liberties whatever and one regulation was that they were not to touch the flowers or the fruit overhead one day a new houri, a fair red-headed georgian girl just in from the wilds of the Caucasus, who had not yet fully learned the dangers of her situation reached up and snatched off an orange after she had got past the bay she was reported by one of the eunuchs and about three hours after was brought to the tree she had rifled and fastened there by two nails driven through the backs of her hands. This old Bey and the others who succeeded him had quick and summary methods of divorce. Such of their wives as were faithless, or such as they wished to get rid of for other reasons, were sewed up in sacks, carried to the edge of the gorge, and heaved over into the river of sands, a thousand feet below. End of chapter 19